when you compare cycling at the moment. Two months ago, the new survey from the Cyclist Alliance came out that 23% of the female peloton are not paid any money. Shocker. So you compare a peloton with 23% that's just making it as a hobby to a pro peloton of men where like the top scorers get 5.5 million a year. Being afraid to crash was so big that I didn't have that joy anymore. So that's why I was like, where's the worth for me now? Because I don't enjoy it anymore. Traveling to a race is all already like stressful for me because I don't know how I'm going to feel in the peloton. Am I going to panic again? Can I even finish the race or am, am I just like dangling in the back? But they couldn't transport me there. So in the end, my in, uh, insurance sent an uh, ambulance from Germany to pick me up in Oxford and drive me back, which is like a 13-hour drive. So you got the ferry? <laughs> yeah, I got the ferry. Oh. And it was, on my, it was on my 32nd birthday. It was the best birthday ever. <laughs> Welcome to the Romance Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh, and six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 586 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today, I welcome EF Education Pro Cyclist, Tanya Ert. Time for a little bit of business. Today's show is sponsored by Stages Cycling. Upgrading from a turbo trainer was an absolute game changer for me. No more constantly swapping bikes onto the trainer. Your indoor training setup is just there. It's ready for your session when you are. I remember years ago seeing a clip on YouTube of Floyd Landis and he had a proper indoor training setup. I remember thinking to myself, if I had that, it looks friction free. I'd ride like seven hours a day. Now, I've been using the Stages SB20 smart bike and I have to say, it's really realistic and it's an immersive cycling experience. You can customize absolutely everything. You can even select the drivetrain to match your outdoor bike. I'm rocking Shimano. It's really comfortable. I've customized the fit to my exact spec out on the road. It has a Stages dual-sided power meter, configurable shifting, sprint buttons. The frame is so stiff and durable. It's rock solid when I'm sprinting. I've paired this up with Zwift, but it's compatible with loads of other apps like Trainer Road and Ruby. And a feature I'm loving at the moment is, it's pretty simple, but it has the USB ports in the back so you can charge your phone and iPad as you go. If you want to get your hands on one of these, which I thoroughly recommend, head on over to stagescycling.com and use the checkout code ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. That's called ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. I'm going to throw all those details below in today's show notes. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today's guest is Tanya Ert, and I absolutely love speaking to the female World Tour riders. The nature of female World Tour cycling, it requires less specialization at an early age. And while that's a double-edged sword, we get into this in the conversation today where we talk about salaries, pay parity, equal opportunities. But the upside of this is so many of the female peloton have trained third-level education before they get into the professional peloton. Tanya is a qualified doctor. We dig into that and how her life changed almost overnight when she won the 2017 Zwift Academy, propelling her into the ranks of professional cycling. But just as fast as that moment in 2017 changed her life, a tragic crash in the Tour of Britain in 2021 changed her life again. It's a roller coaster story full of emotions, good humor, and brilliant stories. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So please welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, Tanya Ert. Tanya, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. The most professional audio setup a guest of mine has ever had. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing about being a podcaster myself. <laughs> so anyone not watching on video, Tanya has the full-on microphone, she has the ear pod, she's recording backup files for me. So if this one goes bad, I only have myself to blame. That is exactly true. But I mean, I think I'm good now with all the how do you say, hardware around it. But I'm always worried when I record a podcast with a guest that in the end, I stand and I don't have any files. So I, I totally get that. I've had been so nervous for someone. I'm like, you know, the big ones that are just 
like it's a really hard interview to get and you know you're not getting a second bite at the cherry for me it was yeah. like the george hincapi one i was just shit it was gonna break yeah absolutely and also it's like if, if you if it's a really good chat you're just like you don't want to redo it because you're like this was perfect i like we can't do this a second time i had a uh, ultra distance guy uh sophien shelley on the podcast last week and i had my like biggest laugh out loud moment on the podcast he was talking about <laughs> he was almost four days without sleep and he was in italy in june and he was pushing his bike up a hill and he said he was pushing the bike up the hill because it was snowing in the middle of the night and then he started thinking oh hold on there's an impossible amount of snow here for italy in june and as he was walking along going, I'm pushing my bike in the snow. It's total whiteout, but I'm making no progress. And then he had this moment where he's like, oh no, I'm dead. Like <laughs> I've, I've died. And this is my punishment in life because I've done some bad shit in my life. So now I'm in purgatory and purgatory is you need to push a mountain bike up the Alps in the snow at nighttime forever. And then yeah. the, the funniest bit of that was, he got a WhatsApp and he's like, oh, holy shit, how come I can still get WhatsApps in hell? This is bizarre. And then he just went through this weird phase of not knowing if he was dead or alive. Uh, yeah, I have that thought a lot. Like, what would hell look like for me? Uh, and I guess for me, it's just this moment when you uh, exit the plane and like everybody wants to get up and like people are like tucked under the suitcase thing. Oh, yeah. And it's, you're, you're a little bit too hot uh, and the air is just like a little bit too thick and you're wearing a mask. And this, like forever, this I think is my hell. Do you not think it'd be like the last minute of like a VO2 interval or something where you can't even breathe and you're overheating and you're indoors, but you don't have a fan? Mm, I think the plane is worse, actually. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so life has changed a lot for you. Uh, 2017 Swift Academy winner. I want to go back and talk about some of that stuff, but I want to start sort of a little bit more present day. Uh, you announced your retirement this year after five years as a pro cyclist. What's this transition been like for you? Have you made your peace with who you are, your identity now? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it was kind of an easier transition because it was like building up throughout the year um, and not like abruptly that I knew I don't get a contract and that's why I had to decide to retire. It was more like, I had a major crash last year where I fractured my spine and had an unstable spine fracture, but I already signed my contract because I think if I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come back uh, into the peloton. Um, so yeah, when I was still in hospital, I told myself if I'm not happy riding and racing in May, that's kind of like my deadline. And um, in Roubaix, which was like my race that I really wanted to come back for, I had a good race and I was in the breakaway and I was riding off the front at Roubaix and I still didn't feel like the joy of it. So that's where I decided that this is not what I should keep on doing if it doesn't give me any joy. So yeah, since I can't remember which part of April it was, but kind of from April on, uh, I could slowly ease into that thought of like, this is my last season. Uh, so I guess it's it's easier for me. And it was kind of a relief to finally make it official and not only having it in my head. I know a lot of people struggle with the idea of who am I? And I know when I was trying to make my way in cycle, like on a cycle and I got to continental level and that was kind of my ceiling. But so many people only knew me as a bike rider, sort of like Anthony, the bike rider. But before starting cycling, I'd spent seven years in university and graduated as a lawyer. So there was another group of people that knew me as Anthony, the lawyer. And in some ways, that should have eased the transition from, well, who am I? If I'm not a cyclist anymore, it's easy. I default to being a lawyer. But I wasn't a lawyer. So I really fought that characterization of me. And I used to just say, well, who am I? Well, or what do you do? I'd answer it with like nothing. I do nothing because I'm still finding out what I do. I still haven't, I still don't say podcaster yet, but I might come around to that someday. But are you struggling with that? Because obviously your training is medical. You're a doctor. Do you now see yourself as a doctor do other people see you as a doctor um yeah i mean it's pretty similar from what you said like i have people around me for example my boyfriend he only knows me as a professional cyclist so i'm like okay what it's going to be like when i have a full-time job instead of like racing my bike around the world what is it going to do to our relationship how are things going to change 
But I think that's every time that you end a chapter and start a new one, things are going to change um, and it's going to change everything around you. But most people I know uh, that are close know me both like as a med student uh, or working in hospitals um, and as a pro cyclist. And I feel like I can be kind of both. And I don't feel like I'm only a cyc. I, I think I'm, I felt less like a pro cyclist than I felt close to being a professional or medical professional. So like I, I had a hard time identifying myself as a pro cyclist because I took that deviation into the sports. So I always kind of felt like a fraud. So I think that's also why it was kind of a relief to to move on from that because it took a lot of pressure from me that I felt throughout those five years, I guess. Was it like imposter syndrome that I don't deserve to be here because you came to the sport a little bit later? Yeah, absolutely. I think I struggle with that a lot in like every um, thing I do in life. Um, I guess it's also kind of a typical female problem, uh, but especially in cycling, because it was like, um, there was a lot of criticism, I guess, especially in the early years of the Swift Academy of like people given the chance of just jumping into the pro peloton. And I think it changed in the last few years because also the, the program itself was evolving and people saw that like good cyclists come into the pro peloton uh, throughout the, the academy. But also I think cycling overall changed. Like you suddenly you have people that come into the sport later or from another sport and it, it's fine from, for the peloton. There's like less judgment. But I, I guess that like just the way it started, it always gave me that feeling of like, I'm not right here or I'm just like, yeah, pretending. It's a strange thing we do in cycling. I was speaking to the cycling commentator, Ned Bolting, uh, a while ago, and he's been in the sport and commentating on cycling 20 years. And he said he's still made to feel like, and this is a very Irish expression, a blow-in. So we'd characterize someone in Ireland as a blow-in if you came to a town to live in the town, but you're not natively born there. Uh, so you could be living in the town for 50 years, but you're still a blow-in if your parents aren't also from this town. So he was made to feel like a blow-in in cycling, even though he's been there 20 years. But like the nature of the chronology of history, someone's experience is always going to predate your experience. Like I was raised in a house where my dad worked on bikes. We always watched cycling on the TV. But like I'll watch a race with my dad now and he'll still make me feel like an outsider. I'll watch Pogaccio win Il Lombardia and my dad will be like, oh, it's nothing compared to Merckx. And it's like, well, I, I, I'm i old enough. I didn't experience Merckx. It's a weird cycling, I don't know if it's a tradition, but like a cycling-ism that we want to make a group of people feel like insiders and another group feel like outsiders. Yeah, it's weird. It's the same with music. When you like, when you discovered a band and somebody else like loves that band later on, you're like, oh, but I've, I've been there for the early years already. Um, <laughs> But yeah, coming from triathlon, it's it was very different in the triathlon world. Like if it, it felt like everybody was welcome. You could come from swimming, from running, uh, from cycling, and you just like came into triathlon and you were welcomed. And I feel like cycling needs to change that a bit. And I think it already did, but it could be more open-minded. Do you feel like it was almost a double header of stigma because you came from triathlon, which wouldn't be famed for its bike handling skills? And then you came to Zwift Academy again, which is a little bit of a stigma around people who ride their bike indoors, can only put power down in a straight line and they can't they don't have the same handling experience as others. With that double header of two stigmas, you know, weighing either on your mind or creating an image of you before people actually got to know you. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, but I had like the biggest criticisms in my own team. So um, as soon as I had them on my side and I could kind of convince them, them that I'm good in bike handling, I knew like now nobody can say anything anymore. I think Jay Vine has helped the Zwift cause so, so much this year. So obviously you've had really good riders like you and Ella Harris coming through the female side. But Jay was someone who definitely struggled with that reputation, especially crashing out of Vuelta last year. But then to put in such dominant, well, he crashed out again this year, but it wasn't his fault. To put in such dominant displays, I think it made people think, okay, you can take somebody with raw talent and you can craft them. The, the bike handling can be learned. You can't teach somebody to be powerful or athletic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not, 
cycling is not a sport like football or soccer where you need where like the technicality of the sport is bigger than everything else but I think yeah if you have the raw power you can see it in cyclists like Kristen Faulkner who comes from rowing and she's just like so much stronger than everyone else so it doesn't really matter if she wastes some energy in a race because she just has that more the bigger amount of energy than every, everybody else and she can just like come in and win races or um my teammate now Veronica Ewers she just started cycling really and this is her first year as a professional and she looks at race wins at GC top 10s in, in grand tours if you call the Tour de France with uh, Pem like that so yeah I think it's what you just said like cyclists have shown on new cyclists from other sports also like Coglitch uh have have shown the cycling world that you don't have to grow up in cycling and be a cyclist from six years old um to become a good rider or a dominant rider you were saying in your retirement statement that the joy was gone was that a process of the joy slowly like dripping down the sink like someone let half the sink plug out or was it like a all-in-one moment where it's like I hate this aspect of the sport and it's sucking all the joy out of me. Um, it was the crash for sure. Like it was this one moment because I, after the crash, I st- already started working with a, with a psychologist um, because I knew that like the trauma and the fear behind it is going to be the biggest limiting factor. Um, but I guess I should have worked. So I started the season and I felt like okay with the way it was. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to save the money and not keep on working with a psychologist because it's also quite expensive, right? And then you have those like little crashes or you're just like behind a crash or you hear somebody crashing behind you. And these are like triggers. So throughout the season where I thought it's going to get better, it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think I should have worked on it when I kind of realized it. But you somehow realize it, but then you tell yourself, oh, yeah, it's just the, the spring classics because they're hectic. And then you say, oh, it's just because it's Roubaix. And then you say like, okay, this is just a fast and hectic race. Um, and you kind of make your excuses. But I should have started there because in the end, it like women's tour, when I raced the race where it happened, like I almost had a panic attack in the race. And I mean, I never had a panic attack before, but it's like I could realize it was a, a similar situation as where the crash happened 2021. And I just like, I couldn't breathe anymore. And it's like, it's so, when the mental part is so demanding, you're just not able to perform. And especially not on that level anymore. So do you want to talk us through what happened? There was 2021 Tour of Britain. Do you want to talk us through what happened in that crash for people that haven't seen it? So it wasn't even a major crash, um, but I was a bit unlucky with the surrounding factor. So a, a rider crashed into me and I got off the road and there was a kind of like a ditch or a dip and I went over the handlebars and fell down and like slammed my head into the ground so it kind of this teardrop injury so um, from the compression I fractured my spine in two places uh, at one unstable and uh, fractured my rib fractured my collarbone yeah it was kind of a scary situation because I could feel right away that something's not right with my spine and I asked them not to move me but they kind of didn't listen and it just like became worse. So I didn't get a stiff neck. I didn't end up on a spine board and just, they just dropped me off at team parking. So I made my, I made my way to the A&E walking on my feet. And I sat there for like eight more hours till I could finally see a doctor and say like, please forget about my collarbone. I know that you can obviously see that it's fractured. I can see that myself, but my main problem is my back because it hurts so much that I can't even feel my collarbone. And then they finally sent me to an x-ray and saw the fractures there, sent me to the CT scan and saw as even an unstable fracture. And then I wasn't allowed to move anymore, but that was like almost 10 hours after the crash. Did you have a moment where you're like, this is bad? I know I've had two really bad crashes and one when I was amateur in France and we were coming down the descent off the Pyrenees and I was on someone's wheel and we were going like 85, 90k an hour. And at the last moment, you know, only if you've raced in the Pyrenees, you'll know what I'm talking about. They have these like sleeping policemen, road furniture, and he just flicked out at the last minute. And I went straight into the traffic on the like 85k an hour. 
And as soon as I hit the ground, I had this feeling like, oh, this is bad. This is not, this is not a collarbone. This is not road rash. This is bad, bad. This could be life changing. Did you have that moment where you're like, uh oh, what have I done? I've done bad injuries for a bike race. Yeah, I think the moment I went down, I, I realized that was just a different pain than I experienced before. And I mean, you can tell it when you watch races. Usually you see people jumping right back on their bike. Uh, even they have smaller fractures or like concussions um, and shouldn't yeah. jump back on their bike. But then usually, you know, if somebody stays on the ground, it's it's not good. And that was the, the way I felt right away. And uh, yeah, I was just uh, kind of panicking. And yeah, I guess I, I knew right, right away. Is there a, a sinking moment or is there a relief when the doctor says to you, you have, because you're uniquely positioned in that you understand the consequences of some of these injuries where somebody else wouldn't. So when the doctor says to you, you have broken vertebrae, one is unstable. Is there a moment then when you're like, oh no, this I'm not happy here. This is this is bad. Um, yeah, it like kind of evolved throughout the week because it's like first you have an unstable fracture, but then that doesn't mean you have like you have to be fixed surgically. But then you have I, I was transferred to Oxford to like a spine unit. And in the morning they came to me and they were like, Okay, like we have to do surgery on your back, but we only open you from the back, which is kind of a relief because you know that like the whole process of like opening from the front, front collapsing lungs and everything is just like a really big surgery. So that was kind of a relief. Uh, but then I first, like I work in an orthopedic clinic here in Cologne and we ha also have a spine specialist. So I said, I don't want to have the surgery here. I really want to be transferred to Germany, which took a bit because first they had to tell me if I'm able to be transported back. Plus it was the time of the fuel shortage so there was no planned medical transport. Uh, and I had a flight out from London Heathrow, which is like a 40 minute drive from Oxford, uh, but they couldn't transport me there. So in the end, my in, uh, insurance sent an ambulance from Germany to pick me up in Oxford and drive me back, which is like a 13 hour drive. So you got the ferry? <laughs> yeah, I got the ferry. Oh. And it was, on my, it was on my 32nd birthday. It was the best birthday ever. <laughs> um, somehow because i could co come back home it was a good birthday present but it wasn't the greatest the greatest party back there and yeah when i when i came came back um i was told that if we do surgery because the compression is so bad uh we would have to open from the back and the front so that was kind of a bummer uh and i was uh, not happy about that but then we decided to first try it conservatively and do like um, constant x-ray controls because my bone density is good. My muscles are good. I'm young still. Um, so they were like, okay, we can try this, but it means that you have to stay in bed rest for six to eight weeks. But that sounded way nicer than opening my chest and collapsing my lung. But it's interesting even that you opted to go back to Germany. I've had Imogen Cutter from Planta Pura on the podcast and she was hit by a car out training. And when she was in hospital, they basically said to her, okay, it's surgery on the knee. And she was just, I guess there's, I'm not sure if it's an Irish thing or if it's a generational thing, but a certain type of person they have, a real reverence towards the medical profession. And if you hear a doctor saying, oh, you need surgery, you don't understand that well, you do have an option to question this and you do have an option to get a second opinion, a third opinion, a fourth opinion, to move to different territories and jurisdictions where they have different specializations. So she ended up just going through with the surgery despite it being not the best place to get that actual surgery and then having to undo a lot of that work later down the road. Do you think it was your medical training or was it just life experience that had you looking to be transferred back to Cologne? Well, I, I think I can't really divide that. Like, um, I started working in hospitals when I was 18 years old. So I think my life experience <laughs> also evolved through working in the medical field. Um, so yeah, I guess that that for sure was uh, or played a big role. And also not being 21, but 31 years old back then. Um, I was able to like speak up for myself and say, okay, I want a second opinion. Yeah. Also having that 
team around me, like knowing, okay, like the place where I work in Cologne, they're specialized in injuries like that. And before I just get a surgery here, I'm going to have them look at my back and look at the pictures and ask them for their opinion. And do you think when you got back into the Peloton or your comeback, did you now have more of appreciation of like the cost benefit of being involved in pro cycling? Because the upside in female cycling in terms of monetary remuneration is obviously limited. And now you have a firsthand insight into how painful and potentially life-changing the downside is. Did it change that cost benefit ratio for you? I guess yes, somehow. But then I never really had that like cycling or professional cycling was never about making money. Uh, so I don't really had like the, okay, I take that, that risk and that means I make that much money because it was more like, okay, I don't work as a doctor, even though that means I make way less money, but I'll be able to race because I really enjoy it. Um, but being afraid to crash and have an injury like that again or a severe, more severe injury even, was so big that I didn't have that joy anymore. anymore. So that's why I was like, like, where's the worth for me now? Because I don't enjoy it anymore. Like traveling to a race is all already like stressful for me because I don't know how I'm going to feel in the peloton. Am I going to panic again? Can I even finish the race? Or am, am I just like dangling in the back because I don't want to crash and I can't like just even stay in the bunch? And then I make less money than I would in my normal job. At that moment, for me, there was no upside anymore because I didn't enjoy what I do. And even even though EF pays really good because we, we get paid um, the minimum wage of the, the men's world tour. So the money is good, but it's still not as good as, as, as it would be in my normal job. So, yeah, there was no real, real upside for me. And I guess like coming into the pro peloton overall was about enjoying cycling and enjoying racing and when that was gone there was no point for me in keeping that up i guess i always think it's interesting talking to people who are just out of the sport or out a few years because when people are in the sport they're very constrained about what they can say and they're very careful about the next contract and it's almost like you're liberated to give your actual opinion on stuff now the idea of you're saying ef pay the same as the minimum wage for the men how close are we to uh, male, female, you know, parity across the board in terms of race distances, wages? And I ask because someone just texted me the other day and I hadn't realized this, that the French men flew first class to the world championships in Australia while the women flew economy. That's bizarre optics to that. Yeah, I mean, they talk their way out of it kind of by saying that they're the defending champions. And if they would do it, for example, in mountain biking where they have, uh, Pauline Ferrand-Provost, they would fly the female in business and the man in economy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's easy to say that now uh, because there's no real real proof behind it. Um, but I guess that cycling is just a mirror from society. And even though a lot is happening, um, I guess we're still very far away from equality. And um, therefore, in a sport where it's even like somehow more extreme because the, the sport is younger or having women on that level of sport doesn't have that long background. For sure, we're not, not really close to equality, but we're getting there. And I think just the, having the pressure from the outside to some federations that are pretty old school in their thinking is very important to like, yeah, speed the whole process up. Yeah, I look at it and I think at the moment, it's if there's two sides to the coin, like you want to have a quality of opportunity, I think is our best thing we can control at the moment. You can't really control a quality of outcome. You can't force the public, you know, especially I'm thinking Tour de France, you can't force as many viewers to watch the Tour de Femme of X Swift as are going to watch the Tour de France. But you can create a quality of opportunity where women get the same access to races, where they get the same, like the race distance thing for me is bizarre. Like, why is there, why are races shorter? Just race the same distance. It's an e, it's a flick of the switch from the UCI. Yeah, it's even worse now with the uh, gravel worlds just happening. And you have all the gravel races, also the qualification races, and it's the same distance, men and women. And then you have the actual event. And then it's a different distance. And you're like, why is that? It just doesn't make any sense. And the same weekend, you have the Ironman World Championships 
And I think it's a very tough race, but it's still the same distance for men and women. Yeah, it sends just a, a message like straight away from the governing body that these are not equal. I get the the economics of potentially not being able to pay the same prize money at some events because I don't know, maybe some events aren't uh, financially runnable if they give the same prize money to men and women but like control the controllables we can easily do the same distance here and at least the optics then begin to look like these are two equal sports yeah for sure and sometimes it's like so why is it that less people watch female sports it's because the sport is younger that's why sometimes the level is not that high because you have a smaller pool of people to choose from so it's harder to identify talent that's why some sports are not that fast or you know, football is maybe not as perfectly as it is in men's football because it's a sport that has grown so much. And then female footballers were limited even to be able to play football for such a long time. And then suddenly you want them to be on the same level and otherwise you wouldn't watch it. So I feel like sometimes when you make mistakes in society, you have to pay the price afterwards. And that might be that you have to pay more money, even though it doesn't economically make sense but that was the mistakes you made in the past right it's hard though i guess because it's like when you say pay more money if it's coming from a governing body that makes sense but if we look at i don't know some a now defunct race say that i'm gentura california you know if there's no female i can't remember if there's a female race and a male one there or not but for instance it was financially not viable to run the whole promotion but if they get rid of the female race, is it still financially viable to run the male race? It's like one dragging the other down. Like, do we get to a point where we try and prioritize female cycling to the point where it drags down male cycling? And it's like, who are we punishing there? Yeah, but then you also have the opposite, like uh, Colorado Classic, I think. It was a male and a women's uh, race or men's and a women's race. And they said, okay, we're just going to keep the women's race because this is affordable and we can't afford to have a men's race because the payouts are just so much bigger and the money we have to pay is just so much more. And uh, the riders are expecting way more. Or the teams are expecting way more from us as the people who make the event. Um, so, yeah, I think you can you can have both. And on the other hand, it's like, so if you look at a, at a race, I mean, they changed it now. But like if you look at a race like Omlop Het Newsblad or Gent Wevergem and you have a disparity of... I think Anna van der Breggen made 430 euros uh, as the winner and Davide Ballerini made 16,000 euros. That's insane. And then it's like, well, who makes more money with their living wage or who doesn't maybe need the prize money as an extra on top? And then it's like maybe just divide it and make it 8,000 each one. And then you still save the 430 for the women. You just pay <laughs> out 8,000 each. So you even save money, but it looks better on paper. And I'm quite sure that most men in cycling, for them, it's not about the prize money. For some, it is. Well, it's, an, it's a nice thing on top, for sure. It's the same for us. But like, I know some men that say like, okay, the prize money is cool because in the end, you almost get an a average wage of a normal person on top in prize money. Whereas for female riders, it's like, okay, maybe you get like 2,000 euros yeah. when, it, when your team had a good year. Like in the past, it also changed. But then it's like, yeah, well, in that case, like who needs the money more? And does it maybe make sense to just divide the men's money in, in two and make it look better? Well, like, I think for me, I watched the sort of fam of X Wift and I loved it. And I loved it after the second stage because I found on the first stage, I was comparing it too much to the male race. And I kept going, well, this is different. They're going slower, they're descending slower, their watts per kilo aren't as high. And it's like, well, why am I comparing it? It's just different. It doesn't have to be compared. It's just different. And it's enjoyable for being something different. And I was thinking about sports. Like I only watch female tennis. I don't watch male tennis. And I don't watch male tennis because the guys are too powerful. There's too many it's aces. Too fast. Yeah. And the, the girls is more fun to watch. But if you flip that on its head and we're only watching male tennis, you know, it's societally inappropriate to say that male tennis is way better than female tennis. But it's okay for me to come on here and say, hey, I, I watch female tennis and I prefer it. It's, it's more enjoyable. So we are in a funny space, I think, where we still need to, to find, yeah, definitely we need to uplift female cycle and disparities like in prize money, like you're saying, there are just shocking by any reasonable 
you know, account of what's going on. But I, I think the comparison between this has to be identical to this as an outcome for me isn't that helpful. If we can start and say they have equal opportunity and then make what you will of it, I think that's a much, in my head, it feels like it's a better way to get to the end. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to compare like tennis to cycling because tennis is in a way different different spot. Like they have equal opportunities, they have good prize monies, um, and I think the top tennis players on the female side do not make less money than on the male side. Whereas when you compare cycling at the moment, I think two months ago the new um, survey from the Cyclist Alliance came out that that twenty three percent of the pel- female peloton are not paid any money. Shocker. So you compare a peloton with 23% that's just making it as a hobby to a pro peloton of men where like the top scorers get 5.5 million a year and the people that make the smallest amount of money still make 65,000 as at least as self-employed riders plus a bigger price money pot so you can you can have a decent life with the money you make in every position in the men's world tour peloton. Whereas, yeah, as I said, 23% of the women don't make any money or pay extra or pay their team back for traveling uh, for bikes or anything. So it also limits the amount of people that can get into the sport because you need to have that privilege of your parents or your partner paying your ambitions in cycling. So that doesn't, that's not very inclusive. No, and I've been talking a bit to the founder of Amani Cycling Project in Kenya. I'm going to have him on the podcast in the next few weeks, and I want to go out and do the migration gravel race there next year. But his vision is to try and change the face of cycling. And when you think about changing the face of men's cycling, it's an uphill challenge because you need to place, you know, it's a numbers game. You need to put 15, 20 of these kids in Europe. Hopefully one of them makes it. And then when they do make it, they have a salary and then kick a little bit back into the project and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you look at that stat, 23% of the women, and you take that same battle to change the ethnic look of the female peloton, it's almost an impossibility because you're putting them into a world tour peloton where they have a 23% chance they're still going to be unpaid, even though they've technically quote unquote made it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's um, it's also a lot of the huge, just 17 U19 riders, they male riders, they already have managers or like even some of the U15 riders have managers because they know the chance of them having a really good contract as soon as they turn 18 and are allowed to go into the pro peloton is pretty high. Whereas as a woman, you're like, you know that you can do the sport till you're 18 because what then? Like either you make it straight into a world to team and then you're kind of paid okay or you just like pursue a not normal career and it makes more sense to you. And that's like, it, it, it depends so much on your parents. Like my parents, if the Swift Academy wouldn't have been there, I could have never been a pro cyclist because my parents would have said like, either you learn a proper job, but you're not just going to ride around uh, in the world. And I, I guess, yeah, that just like limits the amount of people that are able to stay in the sport after turning 18 and try to be a professional, really. It also makes the girls much more interesting podcast guests, though, because you guys are always <laughs> so well-educated. It's like lawyers, doctors, accountants, all professionals, where you talk to the guys like they left school when they were 15 and they learned to write with crayons. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing bad about it. Like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the sport and I don't look at a, doesn't matter what kind of sport, I don't look at a cyclist or a tennis player or a Formula One driver and expect them to also have another profession. It's just like what I ended up doing because I didn't have that direct way into cycling. So it's not like something that I can pat myself on the back for. But still, I think we have to to look at the way the sport is at the moment and that this forces people to pursue a career besides cycling to not like stand there with nothing on their hands or even because, yeah, it's just they're not they're not paid by their team or they're paid a wage that 
doesn't allow them to even pay their rent or their insurance. Well, you know what? Male cyclists going to a place that I don't love either at the moment. I came from a football soccer background uh, for our US listeners. <laughs> and soccer's a weird sort of the, the Remco Evnepal effect has been in soccer for years where they take 15-year-old kids, they bring like 50 of them to one club and one of those 50 make it. And you have 49 on the scrap heap who have left school really, really early. And we're in danger of starting yeah. to do that in male cycling at the moment where there's going to be a lot of kids left on the scrap heap. So I know that female cycling doesn't have that financial infrastructure to support it, but as a necessity to that, so many of the girls like yourself are developing themselves personally and giving themselves a plan B if it doesn't work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the upside. Like I can retire and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to apply in a hospital and then going to going to work and make more money than I did before. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's a big upside to that. Um, but it doesn't like, I mean, it, these are two different aspects because if you look at like developing the sport and making the sport faster and better and make the, people that criticize the sport for not being good enough to like silent them or like, yeah, make them shut up. You can just, uh, you have to make the sport faster and you only do that by getting more talent in to get more people into the sport. And you will do that by giving people the chance that they make their livelihood from the sport. And at the moment it's just more of a, okay, I, can I afford to pursue my dream of being a pro cyclist or can't I afford it? And that's like the main question at the moment. Yeah, you're totally right. It's to, to get those Evnepoles, to get the female Evnepole, to get the next Mariana Voss. There is collateral damage. There is girls who will have to leave school at 16 with a dream. And that dream will be crushed at 18, 19. And it will have a toll for the rest of their lives. And we're seeing that in male cycling. We're seeing that in other sports at the moment. And that's the, the downside. The upside is the sport gets to grow, the sport gets to evolve, the sport gets to be faster. So it's it, it's really which lens we view success through. I had a really interesting guest a couple of months back. Uh, her name is Kat Bishop. She's a Great Britain Olympic uh, rower. And I think she won a medal at the, I can't remember what Olympics, but yeah, I think she's medals uh, in the Olympics in rowing for Great Britain. She talks about what is success. So if you take Bradley Wiggins, he was the poster child for British cycling for so long multiple world champion on the track, arrow record holder, Tour de France winner, Olympic gold medal in the time trial. He comes out the far side, he's divorced, he has substance abuse issues, he's real difficulties around forming relationships. And if we look at that now as a society or you know, even you and me as a objective podcasters looking at that, do we view that as success? Do we look at Bradley Wiggins now and that's what success looks like? And I think we need to learn cautionary tales from the way men's cycling has evolved before we just try and create a duplicate of, of it in women's cycling. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because um, the like social media and like people staying in in your mind longer than like back in the days, it was like you were a professional cyclist and then you retired and then nobody talked to you anymore and nobody heard anything about you anymore unless a journalist made, I don't know, a hit piece about you. Uh, But now it's like people can sell their life on Instagram. So you'll you'll realize like what they do after their sport and after their sporting career. So I think it's also just a a big change because when you look at the, the big guys back in the days, a lot of them didn't really make a good way out of, of cycling. If you look at Pantani, I mean, Ulrich is just, uh, yeah, getting back on his feet again. Uh, but I don't think they're really happy, even though they were like the big stars of cycling when I was a kid and, and, and watched it. So yeah, for sure. It's like, what is success? What is happiness? What do you aim for in life? But I think that's a very philosophical question in general but i think we're in a really cool spot with female cycling where we can as a collective pause and say okay what route do we want do do we want to create the next generation of jan ulrichs of marco pantani's of bradley wiggins or do we want to create something different do we want to create something better we don't have to mimic the male experience so far yeah for sure um it's also i think a question of the race calendar because when i look at as I said, I grew up in triathlon, so I started triathlon when I was 11 years old. And all the people around me uh, that 
were also racing on a higher level um, go into the Olympics. They still like finished schools, went to university because with their race schedule, this was this was possible. Some of the girls that were really like going on a high level, they went to elite universities abroad uh, and and used the good sports system in the UK or in the US uh, compared to Germany um, to combine sports and studies. So I think maybe we don't have to go back to like more and more race days and not being able to have a normal life besides racing, but to allow people to maybe combine both as you have in other sports, because then you have like people that don't have to decide between the one or the other, but they can kind of combine it. That makes sense. Yeah, I've talked to sports psychologists on the podcast and they've kind of mimicked that experience of what helps the transition of an athlete who either retires prematurely or else just comes to the end of their natural cycle like you and decides, okay, it's time for a new challenge. And he explained that like having the Titanic and having compartments underneath. So when the water goes into one compartment, the entire ship shouldn't sink. So your compartments are sport is one aspect of your life. Family is another aspect. Uh, external pursuits and hobbies is another aspect. You know, maybe a alternate career path is another aspect. But you have four or five of these other aspects. And I think hearing you saying that you didn't get access to sports psychology without paying for it yourself after your crash, like that makes me sad because this is the stuff the teams should be providing as much as nutritionists, strength and conditioning coaches and bike coaches. This is important because it, it helps both the performance of the athlete and their transition into life after being an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would second that. Like, because we're in a really weird spot with cycling where as athletes our whole lives, we lie. Like we lie every day of the week. Like a coach asks you, how are you feeling? You say, I'm good. You say, are you sick? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. It's only sniffles. Like you have a chest infection coming on, but you're like, it's only sniffles because you don't want to miss a race. Because if you know, if you miss a race, you miss an opportunity. So you go your whole career saying, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not injured. It's only a niggle. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'll be good. But you stop being a pro cyclist. And now people ask you, how are you? And you're like, I'm good. I'm good. But it's like, you're not really good. Like, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm not doing that well. I'm kind of, I'm missing the structure. I'm missing the being part of a team. I'm missing the common goal. I, I don't really know where I am, but we're so conditioned to just that lie, the sporting lie. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Um, yeah, I was just watching All or Nothing. Um, I think they have one on Tottenham, Arsenal, and I can't remember the third team. Anyway, but it's so interesting to look at the way that football or, or soccer uh, for the US listeners, uh, how, how different their approach is. Like you can tell like there's a lot of money. So they're interested in having the players that cost them a lot of money play as much as possible, which does also mean that as soon as they're injured, they don't have to play because they don't want to have them ha end up with a chronic injury. And it seems like in cycling, we have the opposite where like people race injured People race way too early after a COVID infection, after a concussion, uh, because they feel like they're forced to it uh, to do it. Maybe because the rosters are too small, or maybe because we have like those top stars that are the ones that always bring the results. Whereas in a another team sport like football, the whole like the whole team functions together, so you can exchange one one. Uh, player and it won't change the whole outcome as much as if you don't have your star rider who doesn't end up in the top 10 or on the podium or wins the race but seeing how they work and they have like a, a psychologist talking to to the players they also it seems like they really um the the trainers on their head coaches other than than most ds's mainly look at the psych psychological effect when they talk ahead of the game they realize if the the tension is very high so they don't have to to tell them that they need to win they tell them like okay i believe in you and you can do this um whereas i feel like this psychological side of the sport is doesn't play a role in cycling where your ds is they don't really see what's happening behind your head i mean you can't really see it but you you should realize that there are riders they don't work under pressure. And then there are other riders that need the, the pressure. So you need a different approach with each rider. And 
looking in, into into this series where you get like a good insight into the sport, I think cycling needs to yeah develop further to also have a greater outcome in the performance of each team. And I think that's also why the differences between the teams are so so big. It's not that the teams can't pay for their riders and therefore they have a really uh, different setup of rosters. It's also, I think, the way they work with their athletes and if they have a more like, is the word holistic approach yeah. to it and on, don't only look on, at numbers and training peaks, but also look at, okay, like, is he healthy? Is he in a happy place? Uh, is he scared or she? Um, do I do I maybe need, need to support them mentally more than I need to tell them to do two more hours a week? So yeah, I think cycling just needs to learn a bit more about not only trusting numbers and race results, uh, but also looking into the, the psychological part of performance. What's next for you? Good question. Not a lot, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, I'm looking at three months of nothing, really. Uh, enjoying myself. I'm going to go to a trip to Israel because my, my teammate is getting married. Yeah, other than that, I might use the time and being so flexible to uh, spend some time in the sun riding my bike uh, instead of at home on Zwift. Yeah, and I guess a lot of Swift racing. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. It was fun so far. Um, yeah, that's it really. Will you race as an amateur? Um, yeah, for sure. I'm I'm going to keep racing because I still love riding and I still love racing um, but I think racing in a 120 women's peloton is just very different than racing a local crit or racing a cross race or racing a fixed gear race so I'm really looking forward to rediscover the joy that I had and maybe also like the easiness behind it because I feel like this is also something that I lost throughout the five years if you make your hobby your job uh, you're kind of missing missing the hobby <laughs> um so yeah, somehow I'm really looking, it sounds dumb, but I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, have cycling as a hobby again. Tanya, I absolutely love chatting and to steal one of your Instagram phrases, it's not good boy, it's see you someplace else. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Tanya, thank you very much for chatting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.